Traders, investors, and pundits have been largely optimistic about markets over the past few months, saying that the bear market is over, nothing bad can happen. Bulls have been celebrating and dancing on the graves of anyone with a negative opinion. But all of a sudden, it's starting to feel like the news cycle is turning more negative. There are problems in China, problems in the option market, billionaires coming out and saying that both bonds and stocks are overvalued and actually using data and metrics to prove it. The kind of stuff that Mike McGlone probably really likes. And speaking of Mike McGlone, we have him and Dave Weisberger, and now a fourth guest who's going to be joining us hopefully every week or most weeks if we can get him up on the West Coast, James Lavish, who I guess, uh, who's been very, very popular with you guys, and he'll be excited to have him here. We have a lot to talk about today, especially after taking an entire week off. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit the like button. As you guys know, I was off the last week. I was in the Cayman Islands, actually, with the family. But regardless of vacation, I always take that last week off before my kids go back to school to spend time with them before the mayhem of the school year starts. But the highlight, don't tell my family this, but the highlight was that I actually got to sit down and have dinner with Raul Paul. We had uh, one or two too many drinks and uh, talked about markets, the world. It was really awesome. We had a great time. It was great to finally put a uh, face to a name. And he continued the trend of everybody that I meet seemingly in person is way taller than me. The guy is like 6'4". He looks like he could play professional basketball. He's absolutely huge. And I looked like uh, basically a dwarf standing next to him. But let's actually go ahead and talk about markets. We'll have the public conversation outside the private one I have with him. I'm sure Dave will be joining soon, but we've got Mike and James here already. James, it's dark over there. I know we get you up again. I'm sorry. I say it every time, but that's all right. That's going to get bright here soon. So (laughs) (laughs) I I imagine it will. So listen, right before we started the the stream, obviously we have some data showing that Bitcoin likely might be undervalued. We'll see. And we have quite a bit of data that stocks and bonds are overvalued. We're going to talk about that and we'll get to it. But also, you pointed out some bad news coming out of China, and that seems to be pretty consistent. This is China finance giants mispayments alarm regulators markets. Zhangji, we're going to call it that because we don't speak Chinese here. But Zhangji Enterprise Group, a secretive financial conglomerate that manages about a trillion yuan, surged to the fore after several of its corporate clients disclose overdue payments by a trust unit. And this is, they're saying this is a property crisis has spread to the 2.9 trillion trust industry. Mike, does this matter? Oh yeah. It's, it's unfortunately, it's a tree in the forest and those trees are getting more significant every day. So I, that's just the latest of what I see as a train wreck imploding, resetting economy. And I don't say these things lightly. I don't wish bad things on anyone, but it's a jo- my job as a strategist to point out my views undeterred by other people's views. And um, another headline I just saw in the Bloomberg Journalist says three trillion reasons the trust industry shock is not over. That's the trust industry. But the key thing to remember is that and on a Bloomberg headline, you can't put a, a journalist's name because this has happened to us people, my colleagues, can get detained for, quote unquote, detained up to a year if you write the truth about what you think. That to me is the macro what's happening. I view China as early days of something similar to what we saw, peak Japan, 
um, when the Nikkei peaked around 40,000 and it's still below that level and 30 years ago and peak China and peak uh, Soviet Union. I like to, in every data you set, you see is just the exact opposite that we saw in the beginning of the year. So it was only eight months ago. So maybe it's leaning too far to the pessimistic side, but I asked myself is what's going to stop this? Remember what's happening now is the reshoring, onshoring, and get out of China mode is accelerating. U.S. now import or imports more from Mexico than it does from China for the first time in 20 years. Where the, the Chinese leader, one leader, it's not China anymore, it's one person that's so significant. Even there in the Soviet Union, you had some checks and balances. They don't even have those anymore. And um, he has completely upset his top customers. The U.S. is one of them, but Europe. So I see things as just a normal correction in an economy that grew too far too fast. And it's upset, upset the, the, the country that brought it out from being mostly con country of peasants. So in the macro, what I see here is it's August. And, yeah, we're seeing the little flows in markets. But to me, this is really going to accelerate into what I view as one of the biggest resets of our lifetimes. China in decline. That's way overdue and normal. I look at commodities right now. Crude oil's just had its bounce, and it should go lower. That's normal. Copper's starting to tilt back down. And the number one factor is the stock market has to stay up or else everything trickles down. Housing, yields, interest rates. And still, the problem is that in my lifetime, I've never really seen is even if it drops at say 10% from here, which is not supposed to matter, the Fed is still not gonna ease. They might start pricing for it because the metrics they watch, personal consumption, expenditures, employment cost indexes, will stay sticky. But some of the key things I like, like PPI, just dropped at its fastest pace in history and it's starting to bounce a little bit. Back to you. James, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, China has a, uh, they have a housing issue because they, they Chinese, the Chinese people, uh, their savings are, it's in real estate. Right. They don't have like 401ks and IRAs. They, they, they save their money in real estates and these really, and these trusts, uh, like the one that, um, missed the payments this morning. I, I, neither can I, uh, pronounce what, you know, the, the actual name, but it's, uh, going with Zhangji. <laughs> Zhangji. So <laughs> it's, we're going it, with. uh, yeah, I, I just don't want to butcher it. So, but they, they miss payments. So the thing is, it, 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 they call it the shadow banking industry there. So we don't really know what's going on. And like Mike said, you can't really report on it truthfully uh, or else you could be detained. Uh, so that's the issue here is that what, how, how big does this get and what kind of contagion is it? And does it spread outside of China? And that that's a likely yes. And so it's a question of how, you know, when does that, that next domino fall? you know, to, uh, to, to knock something into that contagion crisis, uh, kind of, uh, you know, category. And so that's what we're, that's what we're watching for. And, and, uh, it does worry me because that they have so much leverage tied up in the real estate market that missing payments because of the way that they were investing, they were investing in unfinished, uh, you know, real estate units that they were expecting to, uh, <laughs> to get filled up and and pay back some of that that principle that that that's the problem so yeah i haven't talked into it that deep but you see these or over the years you've seen these images of full cities that they've effectively built just to i mean to show whether you think they thought they were going to be filled or it was just artificial growth right uh, effectively stimulus but millions and millions of units in these towns that not a single person has ever moved into Exactly. I mean, Dave, they, is that cooking the books i mean is that what's happening in china and the, finally the you know it's coming due well, yes and no. I mean, cooking the books for sure. 
coming due? I mean, what will actually happen? I mean, you know, J- James, uh, who you know, I, I love many of your, your, your threads, but the way I look at this, I'm, I'm amused by it. I think that, that the federal government in this country and in a lot of countries, but certainly in the Western world outside of Germany, are entering debt spirals. You know, we don't have the money. There is literally no way to pay back the the debt if you take in unfunded liabilities in in Medicare and Social Security in this country. It's literally impossible without one thing. The one thing is inflation. Now, what kind of inflation do we need? And I've said this for for years. People need to keep missing the boat. Inflation, yes, despite going to Northwestern, I believe in the Chicago school, we get that. Okay. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. So what kind of inflation? We've had raging inflation for 30 years, but it's all been in assets. And asset inflation is exactly what the government needs, because the only way they're going to pay back this debt is for the economy to grow in nominal terms, for assets to go up in value and people to be continuing buying treasuries. Mortgage rates in this country hitting 8% is a big freaking deal. And there is no way of the long, just think about that for a heartbeat. So now we have mortgage rate at 8% and the long bond at what? Four, give or take? Uh, is that sustainable? What happens? 4.16, yeah, I think. Sure. Something. What happens if the long bond goes to historical averages in the six and a half to seven range? And what's our, what's our debt? James, you tell us. The deficit grows by so much. <laughs> it's, uh, There's no way out. So now ask yourself the question. You know, Mike is like, you're convinced the Fed's going to fight inflation. I'm calling bullshit. The Fed can't fight inflation when they, they actually want inflation. They just don't want consumer inflation. And they absolutely need the long bond to, to stay here or go lower. They can't afford it to keep creeping up. And they're going to use what's going on in China and the contagion as an excuse for sure. And the real issue is how do they do this at the same time as restraining CPI? Already, you're seeing the lapdogs of this administration out this weekend starting to talk about various forms of price controls. You're already seeing it. And, you know, you're going to see more of it. It doesn't work and it will never work. And it's amusing how people keep thinking that, you know, you know, we've had 5,000 years of human history and never once has a central planner ever been able to set prices in a, in a way that's worked, but they're going to keep trying. I, I just look at all this stuff and I think, look, Follow the money. The Fed can't afford the long rates to go that much higher. And I just think that that's where the things break. So they're hoping to break inflation and and then be able to get back to what they were doing. And, and as James reports on very well, I just don't see how they can. I mean, I'm curious what you think. I've been looking forward to this ever since. I saw the tweets you were joining us, James, because I know you have an opinion on this. <laughs> I do. Look, the- we our interest payments are up almost fifty percent year over year on on the debt, at, you know, at the federal level. That's that's uh, inconceivable for for everybody who in the the Treasury puts out reports uh, regularly. The 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 uh, and and what they do is they they're they're trying they're telling you what they expect to happen. It's always a pretty uh, optimistic report, in my opinion. They never really they never expect a recession. They never expect a, a you know uh, a long period of of, uh, <laughs> of increased rates, but you've got you've got tre- you've got interest payments on treasuries now are are they're they're reaching about a trillion dollars annually, and so it's more we're going to pay more on interest on our debt than we're going to pay for military spending in this country this year, which needs to come down about 
fifty percent itself. But yes. So you're you're, you're talking about eight hundred eight hundred fifty billion dollars of 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 you know defense spending that we know of, right? And uh, and then you've got a, almost a trillion dollars of interest payments. And you you know we we had we through the whole debt ceiling crisis we drew down the Treasury General account, and we ended up having to refill it with a trillion dollars. Right. So how do you do that? How do you how do you fill up? Well, we've been sucking money out of the reverse repo uh, facility. And so we've taken what, Mike, about six hundred billion dollars out of that, something to that effect. And so it's gone from like two point three to one point seven ish last time I looked. And so, you know, where where else can you go? There's only so much you can take out of that. And then so they just keep the Treasury just keeps issuing short term debt that's expiring in a month or two months or three. And so it just keeps having to, they have to re-up. And at some point here, they have to issue longer dated treasuries. And that's where interest rates start to move on the long, on the long end. So you get the 10 year moves and the, and the 20 year and 30 year that, and now you're seeing, you know, uh, mortgage rates up over 8%. And because what happens is, and you sent a, uh, um, Scott, you sent a, um, this Twitter thread, um, thread, yeah, yeah. from from yeah. Conca- and this is this is a great thread, and it's, and I, I agree, one hundred percent, is that cash has to come out, money has to come out of risk assets to meet that demand, mm-hmm. you know, that treasury demand for longer dated paper, and so um, that just means that it's going to be a little bit of a crack on 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 risk assets. So um, they, these things all add up, like Mike, like Mike said, and, and, and Dave, you're saying it's just, a, there are trees, there are signals, there, there, are, you know, stop signs, and we're just kind of blowing right through them. And what, what worries me, what has worried me, um, up to now and still is that we, we have some sort of credit event. You know, we can't, you can't raise interest rates, 500 basis points in a year, which is, you know, it's it, it's over 20 times what the inter, interest rates were at a quarter of a percent. So you can't just raise them that much without expecting something to break. And it did. We saw what happened in Silicon Valley. But I don't think that's the only thing. There's something there. There are other things out there. There are other um, companies or other either whether it's an insurance company, whether it, it, it's another bank. What it's There are other institutions out there that have this interest rate risk that, it's not going away. And they're hoping they're making the bet that they get through this. They kind of, you know, step through this, this field of, uh, of landmines and they get through it. Okay. But the, the rates staying up here for another few months, again, either three months, six months, nine months, something's going to break here and, and the fed's going to have to swoop in. And that's, so you're watching the risk assets gauge that and, and wait and, and, and see, can we actually soft land? You know, do we have that means soft yeah. land? So yeah. It, yeah, there's a lot of push and pull. For me, it's just one of the most difficult markets to gauge that I've Possible. seen. In, in I mean, Mike, I'm going to let you go one second. I just, in layman's yep. terms, <laughs> basically that means stock should be topping. <laughs> right. Well, every- I, I think that Mike's been saying this whole time, but the, the gist yeah. there is that when, the, when the treasury was effectively releasing these shorter term duration, people viewed them as risk-free as they become longer duration. People don't view them as risk-free and to hedge. They have to actually sell things. Yeah, I mean, that's I, risk assets. I, I use short-term, uh, I use short-term uh, <laughs> um, bills to, you know, instead of cash and in lieu of cash, because they're, sure. they're yielding so much. Yeah. But I'm not buying long dated paper. No way. Right. 
So the, the, the risk is not the same. So that means that people have to hedge, use cash, which is sucks liquidity. Basically, they've been saying that they're doing QT for all this time, but the QT is really just starting because they've had all of these sort of low key right. behind the scenes quantitative easing happening with the bank facilities and reverse repo and all these things. Is that the gist? Yeah. And, and, and we're, all this is happening. Exactly. 100%. And all this is happening at our favorite time of year, which is coming right before window dressing season. Right. And uh, so as Mike and Dave know very well, w- this is when we get sell-offs, September and October, you know, period. It's, and, we're, and here we are. And everybody's just like, I, 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 it just baffles me that we do this every time. But here we well, are. I, I look Mike, at this yeah. as one of the most straightforward uh, asset allocation environments ever. The U.S. government to your note gives you 5% approximate right now. <laughs> Okay, talk to you later. Call you from the, the beach of retirement. And to me, this is, you're supposed to look back and say, okay, I do think that's just logical, historical. The S&P 500 is supposed to get closer to three. It's 44 right now, 44, 4.4 or 4,500. It's just normal. What we described is a train wreck that has to happen. And then you look at on an international basis, U.S., okay, you know, you get around 5%. In China, you're getting 2%. Well, good luck with that one. Not much happening there. In Japan, you get nothing, maybe a couple basis points. In Germany, the third largest economy, you get 3%. You're still getting 200 basis points more in the U.S. And in, in, and in England, you get about the same. What's the safest asset in the planet? It's still U.S. Treasuries. You're going to get those dollars back. And then, of course, you have 11 aircraft, car- car- 11 aircraft carrier battle groups protecting you. So I look at this as that environment about debt. Heard it, seen it, and I just lived with it from 30, 40 years ago when I was trading U.S. Treasuries. It's just so mute. We're all turning Japanese. But that's to me. The credit event will come and almost never don't. They always, always happen. You have to have risk assets go down. And they've gone up. So you take out the tide a little bit, and then you see who's not wearing clothes. And to me, that's where we're heading. And that's the key question I ask is what stops this? So what we're doing now is the greatest rug pull in liquidity ever after the biggest pump in liquidity ever. And the fact that I can say that and show the data is still shocking to me. I can go back and give you examples from the 1920s when the U.S. created massive supply of liquidity and they shouldn't have. So money supply is still negative. PPI year over year is still negative. And the Fed is still hiking rates and price for that. So I look at it as Everything else is going to trickle down from that, and the Fed's not going to stop. They will. I fully expect yields, bond yields, everything to drop after the stock market does, and the question is what stops it. It's all trickling there. So I, we on our call this morning, even our main economists said, yes, they've been early. They've been a little bit wrong, but they're still maintaining the year-end recession view. So let's picture ourselves in December. Um, recession's kicking in. People are hoping the Fed will ease, and they'll probably get up and say, no, we're not, because we still see high inflation. That's something we haven't seen in a while. That's the great reset, I think, happening in early days. And then you tilt over to what should be early indications of that? What was the biggest liquidity pump indicator, new technology ever for the last 10 years? Cryptos. The best indication should be Bitcoin, and that's why I'm looking for the lead indication from Bitcoin, and it's still kind of showing what I expected. It got up to near 30 and it's just not been able to get much above there. At some point, Dave was going to go. At some point, that's going to change. I know. But right I'm now, it's, going now of, it's a stable coin. I mean, I've been laughing. I was going to say, right. I'm laughing. Not only could it not get above 30, it can't move $200 it's, in a week. That's significant. <laughs> that's the key thing. Is that's why I really pointed out writing this. So Bitcoin has become a stable coin. And stable coins are 
clearly globally becoming crypto dollars. And that's what I really, I loved writing about that when Fitch downgraded U.S. debt. If you use, if you use the S&P when they downgraded U.S. debt in 2011, that was a great time to buy the dollar. The trade-weighted dollar index is up 40% since then. Every asset in the U.S. on a trade-weighted basis is up 40% versus every other asset in the planet since that downgrade. So I look at it as, thank you for pointing out the obvious. Thank you for pointing out how strong we are because we're debating in this and, and fa facing this. You can't do that in China, in Russia. Mm -hmm. Dollars pumping. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, look, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, Bitcoin is far from a stable coin. Bitcoin is <laughs> an This week, this week. Oh, Come on, Dave, we, we zoom in Most here. Most volatility ever. <laughs> it is the lowest volatility it's ever had. Have you ever history? heard the, the, the expression rock in a hard place? So you have people, you have, it doesn't take much. The market size of Bitcoin is tiny compared to the investor investors who have professed interest in it. We have two huge news events that have not happened that people are waiting for. One negative, one positive. Uh, negative is, is Binance, which is, I don't know, 40% of global liquidity in crypto uh, going to get shut down by the DOJ and Interpol. And the other is, are we going to get BlackRock and Fidelity's Bitcoin ETFs approved, which unlocks double-digit trillions of dollars potentially and almost certainly at least half of – at least the market current market cap of Bitcoin in demand for Bitcoin. I mean, at least that within a year, which is – which takes Bitcoin – there's just simply no way. You don't have – there's not enough sellers with 70-plus percent of Bitcoin as people who believe it should be worth a quarter of a million or more. Uh, you're not going to see a lot of – it's going to take a lot to, to get that demand. That demand will come in slowly. It's going to, it won't be easy. It's not going to be a straight line, but that's a big deal. And so you have this rock in a hard place. You have people who are willing to accumulate dips, and you have the speculators are finally exhausted. So we have, an, you know, tops in a normal, a normal asset. You would look at Bitcoin and say, well, look, when do tops happen? Tops happen when the long speculators get exhausted and the buyers don't aren't there well that's not what's happened in bitcoin what's happened is the long speculators are exhausted because every time they get there and i am to use mike's word because i love it <clears throat> every time their hopium gets to certain levels and they inject the hopium into their bloodstream and they start pushing it past 30 to 31 within minutes they they look around it's like wiley e. coyote you run run, yeah. run 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 and hope for other people behind you and you look around and there's nobody there and it's like the puff of of you know, the, the, the smoke cloud goes away and, and all of a sudden you start falling. But of course, what does it do? It falls right back into the current level where there are long-term buyers who are willing to DCA into it. And so you have, that's why volatility has gotten low because there's no, I mean, zero long-term, you know, positive speculation. When there's zero positive speculation, that is when rallies start. So, you know, you, you, have, you have this dynamic going on in Bitcoin and the dynamic in Bitcoin is literally the polar opposite the, the macro that we're talking about for, quote, risk assets is exactly what Bitcoin was designed for. Almost everybody who owns it on in those 70 percent of all Bitcoins that are being held are holding it because they think that dollars, yen, euros, remnibi, all these pieces of paper, these governments are going to have to competitively devalue and print their way out of the, a debt crisis that they literally have no other way to get out of. And so that is interesting. Now, sure, on the margin, do you expect the correlation of the downside? Um, look, if there is a massive stock market sell-off and we do get a crash in the, in, the, in the fourth quarter or the third quarter, excuse me, I think that, that Bitcoin's beta 
it will be historically low, just like volatility is historically low. Why? It has been. Yeah. Well, because there's no speculation. The reason Bitcoin's beta is high is because of all the speculation that's been going on. And there just isn't any right now. Be sure. There's also no liquidity. I mean, to the point of the tightening, there's just zero liquidity. And where's that going to come from? Well, well, well be, be careful, Scott. I mean, we track this. I mean, uh, we track this extremely well. Uh, you know, and the liquidity is real. It's just liquidity has left the U.S. dollar pairs. I mean, w- would it surprise you? I mean, I, I don't know if I can. I, I have a, a uh, I have some interesting charts that I could show. But at the end of the day, I'm looking at the cost of a million dollars of Bitcoin liquidity in the market. And the cost for if you look, go back six months for dollar pairs, Bitcoin dollar on the Bitcoin dollar exchanges, it was pretty much between four and six basis points for a million bucks. Uh, it, 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 it went, it's been very volatile over the last few months. Now it's kind of at, at five, give or take. The Bitcoin tether pair liquidity, on the other hand, uh, is very different. It's half that. The liquidity is moving offshore, which is not terribly surprising. Uh, and so, you know, there's a demonstrable, we're actually writing a paper for the Journal of Investing on this. And I, I'll, I'm going to talk about this in our in our, our midsummer recap. But the fact is liquidity in the markets. The reason people are willing to buy Tether, get no yield is because they want to be able to trade crypto. And it's global and it's big and there's demand for it. Those crypto dollars, the reason for those crypto dollars are because uh, the direct result of the U.S. authorities cutting off crypto firms from the banking system. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing very interesting, you know, cross currents going on here. But but be careful when you talk about liquidity. because Liquidity is there. It's just not there for, you know, it, it's just there's no be, no people doing really dumbass trades. And the reason you get – seriously, I mean, there are people – Fewer. Fewer. No, no. Have you I mean, seen FriendTech <laughs> and uh, Pepe lately? Yeah. No, I know you were. <laughs> you, saw, you saw XRP on Gemini. Last week, yeah, about that. 50 bucks. <laughs> you know, people in crypto, I mean, look, my whole company is based on trying to help people execute better, right? You know, yeah. here's another fun fact for you. Bloomberg produced a, a and I asked Larry Tab for this, uh, a, a, a thing that talked about U.S. equities versus foreign equities, the cost for institutional orders. And they showed the cost to buy 11 basis, you know, cost to buy less than 5% ADV, average daily volume. For U.S. equities around 11 and a half basis points, whereas in Europe and U.K., it's like seven and a half. Everyone's mm-hmm. like, ooh, the U.S., the greatest capital markets in the world. Well, not anymore. Uh, <laughs> and, and there's a reason for that. Uh, there are lots of reasons for that. But it's what's interesting is the U.S. is overregulated and under, you know, intellectual. But here's the, the fact that everyone knows. Our clients, CoinRoute's clients, over the last, since January, January through the end of July, their costs for $200,000 orders or more across crypto, you know, uh, is, is under, well, under seven basis points. So actually, this deregulated Wild West market of crypto, it's actually cheaper to do institutional size, even in the U.S., even including all this, this, these volatility issues. It's actually cheaper if you trade intelligently. Now, part of the reason for that is, is our clients benefit from other people's stupidity. I get that. So it's not necessarily a market-wide phenomenon, but it is important to understand all this. So, so be really careful when you talk about liquidity. What's what's happening is, yeah, there is not enough liquidity for a major buyer. So if you know there was a major buyer did an asset allocation towards Bitcoin, yeah, its price is going to go up because there's supply and demand. But liquidity for short-term trades and for, for people who are in the ecosystem 
it's actually fine. It's just in the U.S. that it's been a disaster. Sorry, that was a very long-winded rant. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a bad thing at all. You're allowed. Uh, and I wanted to go just circling back specifically to talking about really what James was talking about, uh, Dave, you as well, that treasuries effectively have to go up. One of the reasons that we said stocks and bonds are overvalued in the title here is Bill Gross, the long uh, bond, known as the bond king in the past, was a co-founder of PIMCO. He says that 10-year treasuries and that stocks are both overvalued. We're at 4.16%. He says 4.5% is fair. How much would that, I mean, that's almost a 10% increase, right? It seems like it's not much, but how much would that rock the market if it actually even just rose to that level, James? You know, you're talking about, we're talking about six, seven, eight percent, but how much would it change from 4.16 to 4.5% matter in the current environment? Remember, you're talking about, you're talking about a, uh, a, a, a piece of paper that has a number of years of, of duration, right? So that kind of multiplies that effect. Um, so, it also depends on how quickly you got there. If it happened in a day, it would destroy markets. If it happened in, in a, a couple of months, I mean, it would just stair step it. So it really, really matters on, on how you get there, right? So, but it's a huge move. And they, and that's right. They are over, overvalued. And that's the concern is that where is all this capital going to come from that's going to fund these, these massive deficits? Where's it going to come from? And well, so, there's only one way it's printing, but you know, we've made the argument well, before here. Before that, though, yeah. before that, it's got to come out of risk assets, right? Right. It, 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 exactly right, which is that, that entire thread. But Mike, like you've, obvi- you've often made the point here that the days of easy liquidity are over. The government does not pivot back to the same sort of aggressive QE and printing that we've seen in the past. James might disagree, so this could be a good conversation. Yeah, but where is it, where is it going to come from if they're not going to do that, Mike? I mean, we know that it will short term, it will come from risk assets, but eventually those sell off. If you have a crash, there's nothing left to sell. Where does it come from? Well, th- that to me is, I think the key thing we need to look forward to is, unfortunately, is there's plenty of times in history, money just leaves the system and you just poof, it goes away. Um, and that's what I think is going to happen in the equity market. Remember, we've had this, it's really since been since the low in 2009. But what's changed, the, the key thing is also is that's helped boost the equity market to highest levels ever versus housing, versus GDP, versus sales, you name it, um, and, um, and versus the rest of the world, the U.S. stock market. That, to me, is where it's the, the, the train wreck I see happening is the Fed's not going to be there to save the equity market. And right now, it's doing the equity investors a favor, particularly people who are retired in Florida. Get Turn off CNBC, stop trading stocks. I mean, it's the biggest casino in the world. And just put your assets into these treasuries that the government has pumped up to these high yields. When you get to that deflationary um, trajectory, I didn't say if, because it always has happened that way. You get deflation after these type of events and this type of action. And particularly now we're in an environment where we're in the most, in terms of technology pushing prices down, the most one of the most deflationary environments ever book of um, Price Tomorrow by Jeff Booth, Superabundance, another book I've read. They're all tilting that way. To me, that's what's going to happen is the Fed's not going to save you the first move, that first 20%, 50% down, and then it gets over to potential depressionary levels. That's what I'm afraid of. The key thing is right now, that's the current trajectory. We've had the bounce. We know the Fed's not going to save us. The market's still living this hopium, which is not my word. I stole from someone else, I think, on your program, but I it's appreciate it. It's a classic crypto term, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for the mention, David. It's a classic crypto, but it's great. I, I love mentioning that with 
with people. Like you mentioned boomerangs to people in, in, in Gold Conference. They had no idea. I'm like, you didn't know what a boomerang was? Okay. But back to the key <laughs> things. That's, that's, that's the scenario I think we're going to. That's my base case. It's been my base case for over a year. I know it's it's early. It's been wrong. But it's tilting that way. I can show you it's happening in commodities. It's happening in in inverted curve, leading into economic indicators, still at minus 8%. You look at the, the potential potential for recession from the New York Fed's probability recession from a yield curve. It's the highest since 90, 1982. Great. Maybe that stuff doesn't matter. But then you have to put this in the context of rational human nature and economics and history. We What we've done is distorted all the models. And now we're going back to normalization. And I think we're going back to that world where Bad news is going to be bad news, and good news is going to be good news. It's going to take a while for that transition. But Mike, we haven't done this for so like how many how many years has it been since we've had 130 percent debt to GDP, right? So the leverage in the system is so great. What concerns me, it's not as much. As, okay, so it's like landing that plane, right? Where you you gradually take that you you decompress that cabin, right? So you you can take oxygen out of the room. But if you if you have a credit event, which I would liken to one of the windows popping out of the uh, out of the airplane at altitude, you've got to drop the oxygen masks. There's just no there's absolutely no choice. And so we saw it happen just a few months ago and everybody's just shrugging off the bank failures that are happening, like the one that happened in Kansas last week. They're just like, oh, it's just it didn't even happen. So it didn't even happen. It's just another bank. No worries. But but if you have when we have some other credit event, I don't know what it's going to be. I, I cannot call it, but I, I strongly believe that we have a very high risk of, of another credit event because That's of right just there. the nature of how quickly we have we have we have skyrocketed rates. And we haven't seen the effects yet. And so. Yeah. So that's where I think the Fed has to they have no choice. The Fed and the Treasury have to rush in and stabilize the market because what they cannot have is the Treasury market become illiquid. If that happens, the entire system falls. So we have to keep the Treasury market liquid. And that's when that that money printing occurs, because they have to monetize their own debt in order to keep that engine going. So that is uh, something we should look forward to as a potential iteration. I completely agree. Remember, we have good example for what's happening. We're all turning Japanese. Now we kind of got away from that short term, but we're all going back there. But I do, I have to just, one thing I did appreciate a column that was written by my colleague, Niall Ferguson this week, and the economy is not a plane, it won't land gently. Um, and I just wanted to use that because people use that landing analogy. I love it, but I, this is why I think I agree with you, but that's what's happening. We're going to, I think, it's just a matter of time we get a reset in risk assets that have gone up and created an exceptional amount of wealth and inflation, and then the Fed will save us, but not in the pace they have. The point is, we're not there yet. We're still in that point. We need to see that happen. And that's why I look at it. That's why I say just there's certain times in life you're supposed to say thank you, U.S. government, to you know, and good luck to people invest overweight the stock market. I mean, we're still a thousand off the S&P lows, though, right? I mean, it was, uh, what was it, last September, October? Yeah, last October, we were at like 30, just sub 3,500 on SPX, still at 4,450. Maybe that was a shot across the bow. That's the way I look at it. This is things, how, how things have happened in history. And it's also the things that we all remember with markets. And yes, I use 1930 as a good example. You had to have that big bounce. But it also, we all know human nature. You got to get people with that hopium and then 
give up. And I think we're going to have the mm-hmm. period I've seen only twice in my career. I'm only almost 60 where you have to have that elongated period of people give up and you read headlines. That's no longer a place to invest in the stock market. At some point that always comes. I have to ask ourselves is when is that going to be To me, this environment is one of the best ever fed still tightening and the back of liquidity is still plunging. The whole world's tilting towards recession. What stops it? I'm looking at a, I just happened to bring this chart up because you were mentioning 1930. It's a chart I'd made a long time ago, but it's Dow Jones basically showing what a blip every single panic or crisis has ever been. When you look at it, even the Great Depression looks like a blip. But when you look here, I mean, COVID, it's like it didn't happen, of course. But seeing where we are now, how little effect we've had to the downside on the stock market of any of this, even relative to these other ones, it's scary. Nothing's Normal. happened yet. When you look at it like, you know, zooming out, these are years each of these so, candles, nothing's happened. Normal reversion of an excessive extended asset appreciation period on the back of liquidity when that liquidity goes away is what happens at almost every example in history. It's just a question of when. And like we discussed, it's credit events going to happen, but it typically takes the tide to go out a little. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. That's a great point is that it takes it takes risk assets uh, being repriced at least, you know, what it, whatever it is, 5, 10 percent, 10 to 15 percent before something does uh, before before the emperor has no clothes uh, and is, it's revealed. Right. I mean, the real crash comes after the pivot anyways. Historically. They might pivot, but that's when the real crash goes. Here's the so. interesting part is that all the, all this timing is just, it's mind boggling, right? So here we are heading into the window dressing season for your listeners who don't know what that is. It's the asset managers and, yeah. you know, investment managers, they dress up their books to, to realize uh, their profits for the year and their P&L so they can get paid on it. And it typically happens, in, yeah, to get their bonus. And it typically happens. It's in September, and they want to get losers off the books because they don't want to have the conver- the tough conversations at the end of the year. Why we? Why do we still hold this? And so, uh, and so, that's where you have uh, repricing <laughs> typically in equities. But it's all happening right as the pe- the Fed's about to not necessarily pivot, but once they pause, that's that's a signal that they're worried that rates are high enough above that neutral rate which is a, it, it's con- contractionary, right? So if it's above a certain rate, it, they feel like it's, it, it's, it, it's contracting the economy or, or it's pressuring to the economy to, re- to contract. And so once they get to that point, they're signaling we're there and now we're going to hold the, here for a while and right, and right as we head into, into the fall. Yeah, listen, you guys, were, we've got some uh, ex-hedge fund managers, traders here, Mike describes, obviously, the low risk of just being in short-term treasuries right now. Why wouldn't every hedge fund just make their 5% on the year by sitting in treasuries and just have nothing to do with any of this? Because if they do and the S&P goes up 6%, It's the reputational risk of missing out, yes, but... I mean, look, at the end of the day, there's... But, hey, hedge funds are supposed to underperform in a good market, right? Isn't isn't that what's supposed to happen? When when things go up, hedge funds are supposed to do a bit worse. But when things go down, they're supposed to protect your ass. Absolute return. Absolute return. But the absolute return is benchmark to the risk-free rate. Of course. And if you want to get your your 20 or your 5% is a zero. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's problematic. But, I mean, look, at at the end of the day, the, the fact is that... We have a bunch of uh, two huge cross currents here. We have what we believe in nominal terms is overvalued assets. The one thing I would point out on your chart, Scott, 
is if you do the exact same chart but divide it by the purchasing power measured by any reasonable measure of, of inflation. Adjusted for inflation. <clears throat> yeah, but not necessarily the inflation that we've manipulated. Do it the way we used to measure inflation. If you just go on shadow stats at you know, shadowstats.com and, and look at the difference between inflation. Yeah, John, a guy named John Williams founded it. It, it basically, it, the CPI has been adjusted uh, a couple of times, uh, uh, you know, it, a couple big ones. It, it, the way it was in the 80s, the way it was in the 90s, the way it, it was even, you know, earlier this year, uh, they keep doing things like substitution effects and all sorts of yeah. things. Real CPI is is much higher than the the than the actual CPI, uh, which is explains why, by the way, people, every human being that's looking at their bills, if you're not, you know, you, you can't eat your TVs, your calculator. Three percent, my ass. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. In my case, so people are, you're hearing people they're upset, they're frustrated, they're angry. They know they're being lied to. They know it. they're like. Inflation is not three or four percent. You cannot tell me that your grocery bill is up three percent from last year. Come on, it's just not possible. It's it, you know everything that that is at the end of the day, anything that you buy, whether it's a good or a service that can't be that capital couldn't substitute for labor, that you can't offshore instead of onshore, that technology isn't driving the cost down. Because Mike is right, we have huge de- we know in technology has been hugely deflationary, and it's allowed us to have this massive inflation in asset prices for the better part of 40 years. And people, you know, it, it's this, it's this dogmatic looking at one. It's like basically trying to capture a three dimensional space with, with like a line graph, you know, you can't do it. It's not even the two dimensional picture. We're talking about a lot. We're talking about looking at one point or one thing. But Dave, isn't that the whole, isn't that the whole point is to, is to just bamboozle everybody, including all of our international investors in our bonds to believe that inflation's not bad. It's okay. And then quietly inflate away that debt by, you know, uh, allowing there to be long-term higher structural inflation, which is what Mike was talking about. And I agree, right? It's their only way out of this high long-term inflation. Exactly my point. Thank you. So, so let's bring something in on that. Um, and, and from a commodity standpoint, I really enjoy when people get bullish commodities when they go up because the rule in commodities is you're supposed to sell them when they go up. And because that's just a fact. Crude oil price right now, you see it on the screen, it was first traded in about 2007. So let's look at the three C's of commodities, crude oil, corn, and copper. All of them, have, the first time they traded these levels was over 10 years ago, almost 15 years ago. So there's clearly signs of deflation. I, I published recently is the only thing that makes things go up is you overlay all these assets with money supply, as Dave points all the time, that big pump we had um, of money supply during COVID, that's going away. So I like to point out, yes, a lot of these things have changed your CPI, but if you just look at it, Raw commodities, what you eat and what you use for fuel, the actual core price of that commodity goes down every day, which I like to tilt over. People call me McGloom. I say, well, that's why I'm so bearish in commodities because of human innovation, but so bullish on the companies that create those they can do more in every day. So I just, I'll just give you a little hint. I just came back from the Corn Belt. Every time I go out there, I meet with some people I know and, and who create, who are farmers and produce. They say the same thing everywhere. The technology is going so fast, I can't keep up. 
Right. Now, so, but, but think about what you just said, because it's really important. You know, you mentioned the three C's. I mean, copper, yeah, sure, fiber optics have taken some of the demand for copper out of wiring. But the reality, copper, I don't know what the mining technology is. But crude oil, we had the, one of the biggest single events in the history of, of, of crude oil production called fracking, which create, made us dramatically cheaper uh, to get oil out of the ground. We had the one with, with, when it comes to corn, I mean, just forget about it. I mean, you're right. That technology, there's too much of it, not just GMOs and farming and better fertilizers and it, 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 whatever. Those are massively deflationary to the price of that in real and nominal terms. It's so strong in real terms that it's in nominal terms. The issue is, is a lot of what the, what the if you think about, go back to what the government wants and what James was just saying, the government wants uh, inflation in financial assets. And what they don't want is inflation to creep into people's demands for wages and inflationary expectations. I mean, Powell talks about this. Just listen to him. He understands this. I mean, you know, I give him a lot of props. He's done a great job given the fact, given that fact, but he cares about people's inflationary expectations that he loves the fact that technology is is bringing down oil prices. Of course, also using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve also brought down oil prices. But, strategic but we Reserve. Right? There. You know, <laughs> it, it's like, it, it, there, there's a lot of things going on, but that's what he cares about. I mean, if his right, if he could do what he's done, and James, you weren't on this, but I used to do this all the time, say, musicians <laughs> learn, you, you distract the audience, look at this hand and all the real stuff happening back here. Right. Wants people to be looking at nominal inflation on things that technology is driving down while he pumps the economy up here and pumps up asset prices and helps make the, the long debt uh, more sustainable. That's what they want. Whether they can do yeah. it or not is a different story. But the argument here uh, from that thread and what we were mentioning before is that the Fed has basically, uh, maybe they don't, but there's effectively run out of bullets and it's really the Treasury that we need to look at for what's happening with liquidity and not the Fed. Right. Well, we'll go back to what Dave was saying before before we even get to that. Another yeah. thing that has impacted crude prices is we've, we've drawn down the strategic petroleum reserve by hundreds of millions of barrels. So you, you can't ignore that. Like the fracking plus that it, it, it is it is impacting those prices. Right. So when does that turn? I don't that's another that's another impact that we're not even discussing. There's a there's a floor there for the, the U.S. to refill that 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 those reserves. So I don't need anymore. So I, I, I appreciate you going there. I did write a piece about a year ago when former um, a friend of mine, Jeff Curry, was so bullish in commodities. And I wrote facts and fantasies of crude oil. And that is we don't need an SPR anymore because the only reason we really need it is for um, hurricanes because we have a massive right. excess of supply. We need less. And here's two statistics. One, first of all, unleaded gas uh, consumption just recently is about 5% less than it was before COVID. Okay, so we know what's happening there. That trend in unleaded gas consumption in this country peaked years ago. Work from home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not only that, but efficiency. Mm -hmm. EV sales on a global scale are now about 15% total new car sales before COVID was around 3%. What accelerated that? This little invasion. Who supported that invasion? Unlimited friendship. That to me is all that big picture kicking in and just accelerating the technology. So I look at it as, I, I like how, yes, I like to say Biden, President Biden might go down in history as one of the best crude oil um, traders ever. And I also pointed out, you're supposed to sell your inventory where you're in backwardation, you buy back futures. Now you haven't bought back the futures yet, but but that's just normal.
normal inventory management. But now it's just not needed, particularly if you include Canada and all that crude oil up, up north gets kind of locked down and stuck in the U.S. with pipeline issues. We're having running excess of 4 million barrels a day of crude oil. That's 4% of global supply. That makes, you know, that's probably what is that a third of Saudi Arabia's total, um, total crude oil um, production. Right. We don't, but we don't know what, we, we don't know what, what how much of the, of the reserves are actually usable too, right? Because yeah. there's slosh around the bottom of these tanks and we don't know how much is actually usable. So, uh, but what's that, Dave? I said salt domes. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, Scott, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to actually ask you guys, because this is, I guess, sort of breaking. If anyone's following what's happening in Argentina, there's been an election surprise. And I just read Argentine peso plunges 18%. This is like in a matter of hours <laughs> after election surprise yesterday, because the only market open was crypto, obviously. Tether was trading at an insane, like 15% premium in a matter of an hour for people rushing into Tether. But basically, this is a huge shift, it says, in policy as President Alberto Fernandez's government has held the exchange rate steady through a web of capital controls, price freezes, and exchange restrictions. And now kind of all bets are off. I think uh, the guy who's surprising is a libertarian. Actually, I've heard he's potentially a Bitcoiner, not that that's uh, relevant here. But, I mean, it seems to be cracks all over the place here. I mean, look, at the end of the day, everyone in the United States who who hold on to boomer rocks as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to uh, you know, a new digital form of money uh, ignores the how important having sound money is and, and ignores the, you know, how bad it is to be in a place where 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 the currency is there. If you end up with a libertarian in a place like Argentina, Argentina is a bit larger than El Salvador. Imagine what happens to the price of Bitcoin. If Argentina goes the way of El Salvador, imagine what happens to this president uh, if he's actually a Bitcoiner and gets in control in Argentina and the IMF gets wind of it. Well, the IMF basically, you know, the IMF to to pound sand. You know, eventually, you know, people are going to realize in these countries that the IMF. El Salvador could tell the could tell the IMF to pound sand because the dollar is their currency. Right. Right. But yeah, that's harder to do when uh, your currency is the peso and is already hyperinflating. But uh, well, yeah, that's right. No, I'm just. Uh, but look, the bottom line is that you know austerity is not the way forward for these con- these countries. The way forward is to actually un- unleash the economy, and, and and we've seen it. I mean, look, we've seen it so many times over the course of the last sixty years. I mean, all these people in our schools who are learning that capital fifty seven percent who think socialism is better than com- than capitalism. Look at this. Now, they're doing it because they're looking at our system, which is more cronious than capitalist. But the fact is, the only way forward for these countries is free markets. We know it and they'll figure it out eventually. Every single time they end up becoming debt slaves, they get nowhere. You know, it's like the only countries that succeed at being debt slaves and getting where the only one I know of that's actually gotten anywhere is Greece. And why? It's because basically you're austerity. (laughs) No, Europe is carrying them because the Germans were subsidizing the Greeks. That's what's happening because the Germany place to go for a vacation. Exactly. I mean, Germany's subsidizing. I know, like, get, get, get Greece off the euro, and we can go on really cheap vacations to the islands uh, again. Yeah, yeah, but that is, I mean, I, listen, I, we, I know we only got like seven or eight minutes left, and I do want to talk about Bitcoin, uh, obviously, and, and get an opinion because we know, Mike, I know where you stand, and, and we'll talk about it, but obviously that it's been sort of a leading indicator. It's been stale likely to obviously crash. Dave, you haven't made an opinion on when, but believe, which we all do, that it could clearly untether and it could 
be decoupled and perform differently. We have it in the title, Bitcoin Pump Ahead. I just want to show you guys that was based on this uh, article, Matrix Ports Bitcoin Greed and Fear Index Indicates Upswing Ahead. It's historically been accurate, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, we know that these indicators don't matter that much. James, I want to ask you first, do you think that if we get this great reset that we see this major correction in stocks that Bitcoin could either stay where it is or go up in that environment? I think that, uh, you know, all assets correlate to one when we have, a, if you have a credit event or you have sure. a, a strong market sell-off, strong market move, that's just reality. But I do believe that Bitcoin does decouple from that bottom and it, and it leads the way forward back up. 2020. Yeah, I do believe that it, yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, uh, Bitcoin it, went up 17 times from the lows while the stock market doubled. Right. And then, but the real decoupling is when it, it's, it, it stops being the leading risk asset and starts being uh, an asset that, that, that investors are hiding in rather than long bonds. And that's, that's the, that, that would be the interesting uh, turnover. But it, I don't think it's going to happen in, in a period of days. This is going to take a while. It's going to, it's going to demand uh, you know, over a trillion dollars of assets in in that one protocol in order for it to have enough liquidity not to continue to have the volatility that it, that it has had prior to the last few weeks. You know, I mean, that that's my thesis as well. Except I think the timescales are getting compressed. I mean, if you look in two thousand eight <clears throat> uh, at the bottom, gold bottomed three months later. Uh, gold went on an epic bull run while the rest of the market was it was was still languishing and and and, and dropping. But it took three months. It took three months for gold to delink from the market. If you look in the Great Depression, Homestake Mining, uh, and which was because they had outlawed gold, <laughs> so Homestake Mining was the was the, the biggest gold company. Was the, the proxy. Same thing. It went down with everything else, and then went on an epic bull run throughout the out the thirties. The fact of the matter is, I think we're setting up for something very similar to that. I also, you know, have a bit of a conspiracy theory in my head, which I think you'll you probably find amusing, Scott. I would actually be surprised, would not be surprised to if the DOJ uh, was trying to time what they're doing with Binance for when the SEC post their newest comment period, whatever, uh, decides to approve BlackRock and Fidelity in the fall. I would not be surprised to see that those both things happen, in which case what you would see is Bitcoin dominance going crazy uh, to the upside. Uh, Everybody then, sells all their all their altcoins into Bitcoin. Uh, I, don't like, I don't think altcoins are as monolithic as, as most people in the crypto community think. I think there are some projects and some things which have. I value. just mean for dominance to skyrocket. Oh, yeah. But in I think an environment where we have a washing machine of liquidity, that means the altcoins are going into Bitcoin, historically. Yeah, that's right. But I, I think that that's definitely a possibility. But I think that it's really important to understand the dynamics of this volatility drop that we've seen in Bitcoin mean that there's much less to be sold. I think the beta to the downside will be less than the beta to the upside. 100% agree. 100% agree. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I, I do think. And so if you put the probability of a, of a, of a 25 or 20 to 25% correction at 50%, then basically what you're saying is there's a 50% chance that Bitcoin, I think, drops 10%. Mm-hmm. 
and a 50% chance that Bitcoin goes into, or into a big rally mode when these decisions happen. That's how I sort of handicap it. So and it'd I, be very difficult to time that. So if you, the prudent thing to do is to have your, is to have your stink bids down low, like way down there. And because these exchanges will, they'll go offline. They will, there will be massive liquidity, uh, you know, push some pulls and, and you will not be able to get in there and execute right. these trades and, and be, you know, we all, we've all heard it. Don't yep. get cute. Just don't get cute out there. And then right. and, and, and I think Mike, Mike's point is, is there. I mean, look there, if you look at just, I mean, we keep talking about this in the concept of risk assets, but the truth of the matter is you really have to look at, at valuation ratios, price to sales, price to free cash flow price to earnings if earnings aren't massaged as much and where they are. And we are at highs. If you want to look at affordability, you can look at, at, at asset like housing. Uh, there you want to look. The fundamental is affordability. We are at lows yet, yeah, you know, which of course is inverse, you know, inverse thing. I mean, these are the things that, that, that Mike always wants to point to. And he's right. I mean, but it, it depends on where, but even housing, it's different here in South Florida or in Florida in general than it is in New York and still San Francisco and other and, and big cities. So it, fundamentals matter at some point. And we've had a market where fundamentals have really been. I, I don't want to get all cliff assness on this to say fundamentals have gone totally off the rails. But the fact largely is largely ignored, largely ignored <laughs> liquidity and fundamentals do matter in the long run. And that's what Mike, that is the constant drumbeat that we hear from Mr. McGloom, but he's not wrong. <laughs> well, so that's a key thing also. I want to point out two facts. Completely agree. That it's a one-to-one correlation we all worry about. I'm not really so much worried about a crass. I'm just looking about normal historical retracement in value of all these assets that are elevated. But here's the key thing I want to leave you with. Bitcoin and cryptos are very, very bullish for treasuries. And here's why. Stable coins. Where's all that money going? That's one thing I love pointing out. Since 2018, you look at the amount of crypto dollars. It's up like 4,000%. The Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index is unchanged. All that speculative money. If you're smart enough, you made some money on some of these bogus coins. Where's that money going? It's going into stable coins. Look at Tether, $83 billion now. It's more than some countries holding U.S. treasuries, and they're getting 5%. Like, okay, cryptos are great for treasuries. I think our, just our leaders need to figure that out. Well, that's yeah. true. That's where yeah. that money's going. It's going to treasuries. It's not going to stable coins that hold the yuan. It's going to T-bills. Yeah. I think, right. All right. I, I think the bottom line is everyone here is bracing for something to come and doesn't want to put a time or a, or a price on where it heads, right? I mean, that, that's how I feel about it. Okay, it's 10 o'clock, but I want to ask a, a very quick question, go around the horn. Not expecting it necessarily to fill, but if you were trading this, where's your bottom Bitcoin bid right now for the next year? I'll put mine at 20. I think, I think if everything goes bad, Bitcoin still makes a higher-ish low. That's what I think. So I'd say 20. That's interesting because I was going to say 19,500 because 20 is what everybody expects. And well, yeah, 20-ish, 20-ish, 20-ish. I agree. Yeah. If you're expecting 20, you get 20,500 or 19,500. You never get 20. Exactly, right. exactly. Dave, where would you I, be? I'm more, I, I'm more bullish than you. I think it's going to be very hard to push it for any, at any size. 25. Between 24 and 25, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 so the 24, 25 is the, I would give it a 50% probability of filling. The 20 is the holy shit, I can't believe we got here bit of filling. But uh, Mike, what do you think? Double bottom, which is around 15. 
15. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. But I assume, do you believe really quick, if we double bottom on Bitcoin, do you believe that stocks have made a newer low or also double bottoming? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's going to be the, the tide going out. Bitcoin will show its divergent strength eventually. But right now, you have to admit the last few months, it's showing divergent weakness. That's, we have to get to that point. At least show me the beef. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Power Blaster would like you guys to know that I've never been correct. Um, and I would like to confirm that my crystal ball is broken. It sucks. Just, I try yeah. it. I do the magic eight ball. It says 20K. And then it's, uh, yeah, fine. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's hard to make, yeah, hard to make predictions. That's why. There's a very real chance that, that we've seen the lows for this cycle. I really do. I mean, I, I think we've I, I think we've seen the lows for this cycle. And even if McGlone is saying we match the low, that means we've kind of seen the lows for the cycle. And in past four year uh, having cycles, we generally make a slightly higher low at some point after this lack of volatility before shooting up. So I do expect that we will see some retracement at some point. Guys, James, it's so awesome having you here. Uh, I'm not saying that the three of us weren't amazing. But it's nice to have some new blood and, and, and get some fresh opinions shared, obviously. Um, everybody knows the, the three of us what we think at this point, right? So, guys, thank you very much. Uh, James, it did, in fact, get light behind you once it again. Is. I told you, we're, the sun always rises. Hey, <laughs> guys, it's going it's it's to get better. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, thank you, guys. Follow all three of them, please, on, on Twitter, of course. And Dave, your, I, I want to say your YouTube, ran, your YouTube rants or reviews on CoinRats are cr- criminally under, underwatched, right? Is that, do you do that every Friday? I literally just – I was watching pretty, it. Pretty in, much every, every Friday on, yeah. uh, on YouTube, on the CoinRats channel. Yeah, I generally post awesome. it on Twitter as well and LinkedIn. You know, I, yeah. I tried to. I, I know you weren't around this week, and I often watch your 9 a.m. rant and try to make sure I have every one of the cool stories. <laughs> Friday rants and, have and been uh, less less aggressive than in the past. Those, you know, my my rants are uh, less volatile, like Bitcoin these days. Anyways, guys, that's all I got for you. Thank you so much, and we will be back. Uh, I'll be back, of course, t- tomorrow. But this uh, the uh, quad here will be back uh, next Monday. Thank you, guys. See you Thank tomorrow. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you. Let's go.